This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, folks. Uh, Walt is eager to get going. Okay. Walt wants me to say, I don't know why he just saying stuff. Anybody have a birthday within a week? Or in the past week? Oh, what's up? All right. We're going to give you this. Michael Reeves, theologians you should know about. <laughs> We're going to have a quiz. All right, one more. All right, anybody, has anybody taken a New Testament, like, uh, a New Testament class at UT? Good for you. No. Uh, you took an Old Testament class? Okay, we'll give you this. This is God's Word alone, the authority of Scripture. What the, <laughs> I promised I didn't see this before it came out, but it says what the Reformers taught and why it still matters. Interesting. I did buy this before we named it. But you just have to take my word for it. This is Matthew Barrett. It's a good book. Uh, uh, 20. No, no, no. The, the book was out. I just didn't know the book was out. I didn't know the book. Didn't know of the book. Promise. Pinky swear. Uh, all right. Roman number five, why, what would the reformers say to the church today? Now, this is kind of preposterous for me to answer this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. With two head, I mean, we could have spent all morning on this, but um, we didn't. Uh, the first is beware lest Sola Scriptura becomes a dangerous, dangerous form of biblicism. Now, some people that say biblicism are people that base their life on the Bible alone. That I would agree with. We should do that. But there can be like a biblicism that, that rejects any words, concepts, creeds, confessions, as well as any practices that are not explicitly commanded in the Bible. Some people have assumed they're affirming sola scriptura. Now, this is going to test us a little bit and after all that teaching. Some people have assumed they're, they're affirming sola scriptura. They're affirming what the reformers taught when they say, quote, no creed but the Bible. They oppose non-biblical language like Trinity or mem church membership or something like that. They claim that this is a more literal interpretation. But the Reformers did not teach Sola Scriptura in that way. They definitely taught Scripture is the supreme authority and the only rule for life. But they did not allow Sola Scriptura to become Solo Scriptura. Kevin Van Hooser says, it's, it is not that Scripture is alone in the sense that it is the sole source of theology. Rather, Scripture alone is the primary or, or supreme authority in, in theology. You understand what he's saying there? 
He's not saying scripture alone is the sole source of theology. So there's people that say all that ink spilt in the second, third, and fourth centuries trying to define what, what exactly is the Trinity and how they relate and, and the person of Jesus Christ is, um, is, is worthless for helping us understand what the Bible is saying. They don't say that. They, they don't say it's the sole source. They say it's the primary supreme authority in, in theology. And so the reformers, they affirm general revelation. So they affirm, in a sense, God revealing himself apart from the Bible. Uh, they affirmed it in things that can be known about God uh, through creation and providence. Calvin famously called creation a theater of his glory. I think we have it for you. Wherever, wherever you cast your eyes, there's not one spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. He said, so he said, all people have a kernel of divinity. What he's talking about is the effect of the image of God. Even though it's obscured by sin, by situational factors, by um, life, it still is, um, there's a kernel. So they affirm the value of general revelation. They affirm the use of reason and rationality in the study and interpretation of Scripture. So there can be a, a ta- discussion of the clarity of Scripture that kind of assumes that there's no uh, uh, rational uh, mind, noetic work going on in trying to understand it. Right? Does that make sense? That it just flies off the page. They didn't affirm that. If you notice Luther's famous statement, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures and by clear reason, he wasn't saying that it was elevated on the same way, but in order, what he's saying is in order to understand the Scripture, obviously the Spirit is needed, but also clear region. The, the meaning of Scripture does not drop out of the sky. We must use our rational faculties to understand it. And, and therefore, because of that, we shouldn't be opposed to non-biblical, but not necessarily unbiblical language. Because to do theology in the face of, or to do theology with the increasing demands that, the, that is brought upon theology, we have to define things. Like right now, we have to be definitional, definitional, in you and 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 do so in using a, a non-biblical but biblical uh word so sorry that was a little bit of a cluster but like gender what's going on in gender we have to get very definitional right now our statement of faith is very definitional in a way that the reformers were not and so we're bringing and and so uh so we're so scripture is the primary authority, obviously, but it's not the sole source of understanding theology, like we're using our rational faculties and things like that. They also affirm the place of creeds and the teachings of the church. Luther says, I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone. He wouldn't say, I do not trust in the popes or the councils. That's why, you know, Luther, they say, I mean, he didn't, he didn't try to start a new religion. I think he ended up having to. 
that's kind of essentially what happened. He was hoping for a reformation in the Catholic Church. So, so he, he's saying there's a role. Uh, there's a role for, for churches, traditions, councils. Uh, as long as they don't err, then there's a role for them. In fact, so scripture was never scripture matters, but everything else doesn't matter. When, when Luther defended his belief in sola scripture, he cited the Bible as well as an earlier decree of the Pope and the teachings of the early church father. Thomas Cranmer went on to say in, in, in the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, he said, the church hath, no power, hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith. So he, he's saying scripture is the supreme authority, but the church has a power. They have a role in adjudicating these things and explaining them. Mark Thompson in his wonderful book, Reformation Theology, says the ordering of common life was a prerogative of the church so long as what was instituted did not contravene the word of God. The settling, the settling of re religious controversy was a collective activity of believers rather than a single solitary believer no matter his title. So he's saying pastors and churches must, must order the common life. They must bring order to that which is not explicitly biblical, but do so in a way that is not unbiblical. The, the important thing is there can be, what can happen, I guess we're going to get to it, but um, this biblicism can result, result in a literal, uh, overly literal painstakingly literal interpretation of the scripture and an, and an isolatingly uh, and can result in an isolation of yourself from the teaching of scripture all throughout time. And so that probably leads us naturally to beware lest sola scriptura become a form of subjectivism. The reformers did much to, to promote the private study of Scripture, but they are also aware of the clear and present danger of subjectivism. Now, the Reformers uh, uh, affirmed subjectivity in the study of Scripture. Luther famously said, experience alone makes one a theologian. What he meant by that is you only become a, theo a theologian by, by taking, the, taking the word home to, your, to yourself. But... They, they rejected subje subjectivism. They rejected the idea that knowledge or truth is merely subjectively true for the individual, but not objectively true for all. They rejected the idea that we can, read all, we can all read what we want to read from the scriptures. They affirmed that scripture has a fixed objective meaning dis discovered by interpreting it literally. You know, we've all been in a small group Bible study and heard someone say, well, this is what this text means to me. And you're like, that's not what that text means, you know? Restrain me, honey, you know? Uh, but, you know, that's not it, you know? And, and the debate in Lipsig, now Luther was, was, this is a famous quote. He accused the monk, a monk named Augustine Alfred of making scripture whatever they, making out of scripture whatever they want, making it a wax nose that can be pulled here, and there, so you'll hear people reference the wax nose. That's, that is, Scripture becomes a wax nose. That's, what, that's from Luther, and that's what he's talking about. So this subjectivism is very dangerous, and, and uh, we would agree with the, the, uh, the reformers on the danger of it. 
and yet we are still vulnerable. In fact, some people call Sola Scriptura the great sin of the Reformation. Now what? That's turning over everything we've been talking about. What? Because they say it permits everyone to interpret Scripture according to what is right in their own eyes. And that, my friends, is very dangerous. And so Protestants definitely have followed along that principle pretty well. In, in, in a 2010 study of global Christianity, they estimated 4 million congregations and 38,000 Protestant denominations. Though before 1500, there was one denomination. Afterward, 38,000 Protestant denomination. That seems a little high, you know. I mean, nah. you know, in my town, there's there is Pond Hill Church. Down the road, there's Old Pond Hill Church. And the one titled Old did not come first. Because those new guys at Pond Hill messing things up. We're going back to the original. And so we just splinter off. In some ways, that's the story of Protestantism. Church division. Because of a misunderstanding of Sola Scriptura. It does not mean do whatever is right in your own eyes. I would say we're especially vulnerable right now the most dangerous cultural mindset we're facing is expressive individualism. Charles, Charles Taylor, one of the most important writers on this, says everyone has a right, this is what he's talking about in our culture, everyone has a right to develop their own form of life grounded on their own sense of what is really important or of value. People are called upon to be true to themselves, to seek their own fulfillment. What this consists of, each must, in the last instance, determine for himself, him or herself, no one can say or should try to dictate its contents. He's talking about the mindset of you got to be true to yourself. No one can tell you what is true for you. You, you, you know, uh, you have to determine your own truth. Obviously, it's, it's to some degree the relativism that we saw the past 30 years. But this is a, a more disastrous and a more dangerous form of subjectivism and relativism that, that places you and your authentic self in the center of everything. And it's no less true when you come to the scriptures. And so, specific to our topic, the expressive individualism of our culture becomes dangerous. Study scripture because it speaks like, I believe what I read in scripture. I receive what I interpret in scripture. I stand on what I've concluded is true in scripture which is good. But if you stand alone, you can end up standing on yourself. No longer standing on the authority of Scripture. Rod Dreher said, The church, a community that authoritatively teaches and disciples its members, cannot withstand a revolution in which each member becomes, in effect, his own pope. 
So that's bringing us full circle. What he's saying is this expressive individualism, the way it comes in a church with authoritative uh, uh, word and with teaching and, 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 and essentially uh, as a revolution in which each member decides for themselves what is true for themselves. Incredibly dangerous. It will untangle everything in your life. You will decide what is true for you when it comes to marriage and how long you want to stay in one. You'll decide what's true for you when it comes to how long to stay in a church or how long to stay in a relationship or how long to stay in a job. And so it's incredibly dangerous. We end up no longer worshiping the living God, but a God of our own making. G.K. Chesterton humorously said that that Jones talking about capital uh, last name Jones that Jones shall worship the God within him turns out ultimately to mean that Jones shall worship Jones so this subjectivism can result in you know a, a, a pronounced individualism independence isolation um, dismissal of local church authority of pastors preach lead govern authority of relationships in your life uh, disobedience um, embracing lifestyles explicitly forbidden in scripture because of a higher subjective authority this idea well this makes me feel true this is true this is the way I've always felt that's that you're standing on a, an authority you have deemed a, a, a different authority higher than scripture it's not about interpretation. It's about subjectivism. Um, so, right understanding equals authority, the Word of God, plus interpretation, the analogy of faith, and if we could say it this way, the community, the study of the Word across history in the church. Now, when I say that, I'm not elevating anything to the place of Scripture. But I am seeking to guard us against a dangerous understanding of sola scriptura that ends in solo scriptura. That seems right to me. That seems to be what is going on in Acts 15. That seems to be what's going on in the councils of Nicaea, Chalcedon, Constantinople. That seems to be what the Reformation was. If you want to think about it this way, like the Reformation was dict or before the Reformation, there was a form of solo scriptura. There was a form of someone deciding what is true in Scripture for everyone. And the Reformation brought about this this burst of activity in which Scripture interpreted Scripture. And it brought in all sorts of people to work it out. One guy said that Reformation can be seen as an explosion of pent-up conciliar reforming energy. People wanted to study and help figure this out. So how to avoid this subjectivism? Go to church. (laughs) Serious. And don't stop. Seek counsel from, from Christian leaders. Maturity in a Christian life, is not being able to do whatever you want. Like, it's not, it's not like, you know, we think about it like, when are you mature as a teenager, you know? We got to drive at night, you know? It's not like suddenly announcing freedom. Maturity is understanding your need for other people in order to understand yourself, understand the Bible, understand your life. 
And if you conclude something from Scripture that the vast majority of people throughout history have not, give up your conclusion. <laughs> Abandon it. <laughs> like, <laughs> just throw it out. <laughs> just stop. <laughs> Don't say it. All right. Let me take some questions, if there are any. Yes, ma'am. Hmm. I mean, I th we have Mennonites in our town, um, which um, I think you can say a, cr a criticism would be, I think there's definitely a, a disproportion of a way of life being placed in a disproportionate way in relation to doctrine. And so you can go to the midnight market and there's, you know, there, there you see a, a way of life more than you see the embodiment of a doctrine. Uh, I think there, you know, I, mean, I do think head coverings is, it is one text. And so it's, it is, you know, um, it's dangerous, but I think that comes in, I mean, I think Mennonites in general, I mean, I haven't studied them at length, but it's like it comes in a framework of that overly literal understanding of the Bible and and uh, biblicist understanding of the Bible. And so uh, I think, you know, any text, and this isn't, this tricky part is, you know, you introduce interpretation, this isn't a class on hermeneutics, but it's like, uh, any text has some cultural things. Not, well, many texts have cultural things. There are things that, trans, that are transcultural, but there are cultural clothes in some parts of the Bible. Like, like should, we, should we have a foot washing service? My personal thought is, um, don't touch my feet. <laughs> no, I don't wear sandals. I don't walk all day long. I drive in a car with, you know, with a gas pedal. I mean, like everything is carpeted. Uh, that's not the self-abasing sacrificial service I need. Or I would argue the church needs. And so there's foot washing Baptists. I remember in um, To Kill a Mockingbird. And so that's where I'd say, you know, that's dangerous. And so I think, but it's hard. I'm not saying it's, 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 it's easy. It's hard to, to, to uh, you know, separate. So I think, for instance, culturally, so, you know, one of the main arguments against First Timothy 2 that argues that women should be able to preach in local churches is, I think, a misunderstanding of when and where to apply this cultural principle. Because First Timothy 2, it's rooted in, now that it does say she'll be saved through her childbearing, so that's a tricky phrase, but it's, it, do, it is rooted in a creation order. So it's rooted in a timeless principle. It's not a cultural thing. Whereas I would say 1 Corinthians 11 with the head covering is cultural. Like he, I think Paul, I would argue Paul is saying in that, con he's saying this is what they do to show 
headship and submission, proper authorities in the home and in the church, in that culture. So keep doing that. Maybe in our culture, they would say, keep taking a last name. Women, keep taking the last name of your husband. Keep letting him open the door for you. Keep, you know, uh, you don't need to be empowered in that way to not do that. It's a way you should be looking, what it's saying, for ways to affirm the timeless transcultural principles in your marriage. Um, so, sorry, got a little feared off a little bit. Noodle. Um, noodle. <laughs> Timeless principle. Yeah, I think I'd argue, I would ask, uh, why is it only mentioned a few times? Um, like homosexuality. You could say the word. Yeah, I mean homosexuality. But sexual immorality is repeatedly referenced. Uh, sexual perversions, you know, repeatedly referenced. Uh, and so, I, you know, but I get what you're saying, like an argument against it. I think that's where I'd, uh, you know, try to try to figure out why it's only mentioned a few times. Um, you could, I guess you could make that argument about women teaching. Um, but, it, you know, my argument about women teaching, not that I want to get into that, <laughs> would not be based on a single verse only. Obviously, a creational order a pronounced biblical pattern. And so, um, I don't know if I have anything else to say. I think yeah, each one is a little distinct. The, but the proportion idea is, you know, I think for us among Christians is like just making sure our passions are proportional. So, man, you get, people can get sideways on the end, of, end times and, you know, God wins. You know, I, I think, and I think you should think about it and you should think carefully about it and try to understand it, but it seems like there's a lot of things to put together. And, you know, it's kind of like the way churches are governed. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of little arguments, and I think you want to be very careful. It's like, you know, we have like a Presbyterian form of government, but there's, you know, that, that's not the main principle we stand on. We stand on justification by faith alone. We stand on authority of the word of God. We stand on creational differences. We stand on so many other things. So that's the main thing with that proportion I would argue with Christians. But John? Yeah. I mean, I think like believing the Bible is the word of God because it says it is aligns with like a presuppositional apologetics like you're you're uh, you're building your framework for apologetics not from the ground up but from the word of God only and so therefore you know like I uh, forget who's the guy that has the <sighs> just read something by him the other day you know like a classical apologist you know it would have a 20-page art article, a uh, famous article on the, on the resurrection. Man, it is so... William Lane Craig, 20-page, 20 25-page article on the resurrection. 
but none of it assumes the Bible's a reliable word for it. It's it's and I I I mean I think there can be some help in that. Uh, but I would be more of a priest. I mean I don't do a lot of apologetics anyway. But I, you know uh, I would be more of the presuppositional guy and and would just question the the wisdom and the investment of that much time when we know every person has a kernel of divinity within them. Everyone has. Everyone sees the truth about God. It's plain to them. They're suppressing the truth and embracing the lie. So what I need to do is reveal to them how they're embracing the lie. And so with presuppositional, you're trying to like say, you have no basis for believing that. You have no basis, apart from a sovereign God, of believing the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You have no basis for believing that chair you're sitting on is not going to disintegrate. Apart from the, 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 you know, it's not like, it's not a completely abandoning laws of nature and things like that, but, you know, it's, it's trying to build on that. I don't know if that would help, that helps, but it does help me because I feel like, just similar to you, studying these guys on scripture is so much helpful for me than the guys that just think, well, we'll silence all the questions when we answer them all. It's not true. What you get up, what you know, you what you hook them with, you got to keep them with, and so I don't think you'll win that. What you'll win is by loudly declaring what the Bible says about itself. And so, what, Bailey, Dan, Dan, Daniel Wallace. <laughs> I mean, in that context, uh, I mean, I would say the transmission history of the Bible is unrivaled. Unrivaled against classical works. You know, we, we talk about Plato and so- Socrates like, like we're quoting them directly. There's no comparison um, in transmission history. So there can be like, there's a, uh, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. Like, I see things clearly that they didn't see. So that's, you know, uh, like, we've come along, we've advanced, you know, it's kind of the result of modernism. And so, um, you know, that's, I think that that is imbued in a lot of those arguments. Um, as for how, I think, you know, like new, the the reliability of New Testament documents by F. F. Bruce is an excellent book, and it's very short. And I think, you know, it's going to make a number of arguments that that uh, you know whether it's like, you know, different in Luke, uh, different Roman rulers that were over different regions that were only over those regions for certain years reveals how contextually astute Luke was. I think the the name stuff is is very helpful for that. Um, you know, um, that guy, Richard Bauckham, goes into lots of different names. Talks about, you know, the study of names. Like, for instance, the name Wendy never occurred in the English language until, can somebody tell me when it was? Exactly right. So names and the use of names don't just indicate a person they locate it in a time. 
and he does just etymology studies that are amazing. So I think uh, some of those I think would be helpful. F.F. F. Bruce is probably the most helpful. You know, I think the manuscript stuff and I think the eyewitness stuff and, the, you know, there, there's lots of good things on there. You know, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, son, son of Alexander and Rufus or whatever, brother of Alexander and Rufus, all these things are, uh, all these these uh, names are very vital. I think that's where I'd go. Um, and then I think you could try to work through. I mean, I think the, but, you know, I still think I'm trying to pick at the lie, you know. I'm trying to I'm trying to put a a pebble of uncertainty in their shoe um when it comes to what they believe and I'm you know in some ways trying to trying to discover what are their inconsistencies there because uh, really it doesn't come down to transmission history and all these things it comes down to a denial of the truth and so um but the other thing I would say is don't don't let your hair get blown back. Like, you know, uh, and you you know whether somebody's just feeding you some rope or they're serious. And if they're just kind of throwing you some rope, then don't mess with them. Oh, well, not completely, but, you know, <laughs> be wise with your time investment. But if someone's serious, then don't let your hair, hair get blown back. The Bible... What did Calvin say? It stands on its own footing. So let it stand and 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 work through it problem by problem. Yeah, I think you say it's true. I I I I have no no reason to believe it's not true. There were I mean uh both Luke and John say there were so many other stories I could tell. So there's other stories, lots of other encounters. We have some collected in the Gospels that are making specific arguments. So it doesn't bother me that it's true. And, you know, what that's just saying is that the, that actually should build your confidence because it's just saying the transmission history, the, the manuscript history is not as good on that. And therefore, we should we should say like Piper preached on that and said how to preach on something in the Word of God that should not be in the Word of God, uh, and I think that's you know so you say hey that actually the reverse is true for me that builds my confidence in how careful this is done so you know and the scribal stuff you know and I forget what it is but they say whatever like uh, you know. Uh, 94% agreement in all the manuscripts, you know, and, and then all the p- p- places of, of, of disagreement, you know. So sometimes you do have the John thing. Sometimes you're moving along in a parable or something and just the whole verse is not there, you know. You go from 25 to 27, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it should build your faith, you know. So I think going through those things and saying, saying some of that, that is helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, Josh McDowell's book, The Evidence That Demand, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is good for that stuff. You know, it's not, not my favorite thing, but um, it is helpful for just, just having raw stats for people. Uh, we got a few more minutes. Jordan.
have to give me a little more there. What do you what do you think about? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you mean scripture alone as uh, the only good rule of law or something. Um, yeah, interesting question. I don't know quite where I would would stand on that, you know, because I think, yeah, even listening to Kevin DeYoung the other day, like there's a scholar that wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. Uh, Ryan T. Anderson, so you got the meaning of that, you know, instead of Harry Met Sally, when Harry Became Sally, it was blackballed, it was bl- blacklisted, you can't buy it from Amazon. Ryan T. Anderson, he's a lobbyist. You know, um, obviously the word of God is still true. Um, but I think, you know, like, I think what can happen, so the scripture, uh, the danger that can happen, you know, you're right. I'm mainly talking about the church and, uh, and, and um, the danger that can happen in the world is there can be a, uh, a denigration and a uh, kind of a dismissal of natural theology. So what's provoking about when Harry became Sally is it's making a profound argument on the danger of transgender. He did the same thing on homosexual marriage. Ryan T. Anderson did. Brilliant. But he's arguing sociologically, philosophically, historically. Um, He's a Christian. But he's trying to he's he's trying to change policy, and it's not that he's said the Bible's not welcome in the public sphere or something like that. He's not saying that, but he's aware of the fact, it, you know, because we if the Bible is, te- I mean, you could say, te- I mean, I think we should say, the Bible's the only good rule for life. It's the only rule of life for everyone. So you like you run your life apart from the Bible, and it's not going to go well. But when you move outside this sphere, I think you have to be, you have to be wise to introduce uh, and, and be willing to entertain. And so that's where that form of biblicism would say there's no place for reason, no place for natural theology, no place for sociology and careful study. But you study like this is the only culture in the history of the world that is doing the stuff we're doing. And it's destroying the building blocks of society. And that's just going to be an argument that you can make and influence people for good, you know. So, so I think what can happen, too, is there can be, you know, you can think sola scriptura. Uh, what can happen in the church is there can be um, a lack of a push for people to do thinking like that. And a lack of a push for people to go into politics and things like that. And I think that's a mistake. Um, because, you know, your motivation is for the good of all. Um, even though, you know, you know, as as uh, Mark Dever has said, um, America is an, ex- is an experiment. The church is eternal. And so you know you're you're trying to help the experiment.
what's going to crumble and fall one day. Oh, that helps. But I do think it does mean that, you know, it, greater appreciation for other voices. Anything else? Layden? I mean, probably not much different than what we've been doing, like Second Timothy 3, you know, first, Second Timothy, Second Peter 1. Um, I think, you know, you can definitely go with the inconsistencies of papal authority, uh, you know, and yeah, the, I mean, I just think the problem that comes with it, you know, and then I, I would be sympathetic, though, because I do think Protestants have certainly made a mess of things. And, uh, you know, and that's where we do have to be sympathetic. But I also, I don't have any problem with denominations. I have a problem with divisions and, and ungodly people, uh, ungodly Christians, like dividing unnecessarily and, and devouring one another. But denominations, I don't denigrate that. So I don't think, you know, I just think there can, you know, denominations form in the province of God for very good, helpful purposes. So you're going to have, I mean, yeah. You had more unity around unorthodox teaching, but you have you have you, you know you have denominations that try to form in in important and helpful ways, and so I think the biggest thing we got to watch out for is like that divisive spirit that can be like, I'm taking my ball and going home if it doesn't work out for me. That's probably what I would go with. There's a book uh, uh, <laughs> called uh, Biblical Authority After Babel. So it's likening the Reformation to Babel. Everybody's able to say what is right in their own eyes and uh, make their own tower to God or whatever. Um, that is helpful. Uh, it's Kevin Van Hooser. It's a hard book, but his chapter on Solar Scripture is pretty pretty helpful. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna end by a unison reading together. This is the Middleburg Liturgy. Just a prayer for our personal study of Scripture, and we're gonna slide in right on time. <coughs> All right. So let's, let's read this together if we can. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorn he cares of this life choke it, but that, as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. 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 Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, 
and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.